0: And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says, all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. This is the very word of God.
1: I love the gospel, and I love Easter, and to celebrate Christ's resurrection. I am not ashamed of that. It is my favorite holiday of the year, and I think Ben shares in that as well. So I'm excited about today's message, which is a reminder of the gospel of resurrection. Now, why is it both necessary and good to be reminded of important matters? Doctors and medical providers periodically have to go through courses to be reminded of skills and guidelines. Pilots must go through checklists and trainings. Industries must be reminded of safety and health standards. Workers have to be reminded of their duties, and so on and so forth. As Ben said, here at Crosstown, every year in August, we go through a three-message series that reminds us all of three core values, essentials, Of our church gospel community and mission we are saved by the gospel into a community and for mission we have received the gospel so that we may live it together and so that we may deliver it to others and remind believers of it it is both good and necessary to ponder the tenets of our faith the bonds of our fellowship and the purpose of the journey that we are on together. It is a way for us to believe, to be discipled in, and to obey what we have been given and what we have been commissioned to do. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is at the very center of it all. The matters of life, death, and resurrection of Jesus are of primary importance to all those who believe the gospel. Such matters of first importance must be rehearsed and are worth repeating. As elders, we have the opportunity to ask prospective members, what is the gospel? And we get to hear people's stories and rejoice in how God worked in them to give them life. The gospel is glorious. It is life-giving. It is transformative. It is hope. It is peace. It should be regularly preached to ourselves. It is the good news and the foundation of our salvation, It is the catalyst of our sanctification. It is the assurance of our glorification. It is the object of our faith. And we must believe it in its entirety, in its fullness. But hear this. The gospel is not primarily about you and me. It is about God. God who made the world and everything in it. Who made us for himself. Who sought after us when we ran away, who became man in the Christ, lived a holy life, died an atoning death, was buried, rose again, and is now exalted. A God without whom none of us would exist, without whose mercy none of us would live, without whose grace none of us would be saved, without whose love none of us would be adopted, without whose power none of us would be sustained, without whose assurance none of us would have hope. God has made us for himself, for his glory. And as John Piper says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. The catechism also says that the chief end of man is to glorify God. The acts of living and proclaiming the gospel are acts of worship to God, whether people believe it or not. The gospel is glorious to be lived and to be proclaimed because the gospel is worth to be lived and to be announced to the world in and of itself. Now, one of the pillars of the gospel story is the resurrection of Christ, just as it is one of the pillars of our story, of our hope. Many people's narratives seem to end with the moment of salvation, maybe not focusing on, but sometimes maybe forgetting the promised resurrection and glory that is to come and to be revealed, the promised defeat of God's enemies, the promised kingdom to come. Others think one day in the by and by, our souls will have some disembodied state of bliss somewhere on the clouds out of this world. And some might add harps to that as well. Some even deny that the resurrection will happen or even claim it has already happened. And thus, we are free to do whatever we want. But we believers gathered here today and every Sunday, we fellowship together during communion, proclaiming the Lord's bodily death and bodily resurrection until he returns. And that is because Christ is risen, and we will rise again with him. The passage before us today has been on my mind regularly this year. In my prayers and my meditations, but also in conversations with people I encounter on their deathbed, whether to give hope to the hopeless or to encourage a believer in the hope that we both share in Christ. And this passage brings to mind three important matters pertaining to the gospel, and they are centrality, consequences, and consummation. The centrality of the resurrection to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the consequences of no resurrection, and the final consummation Of our resurrection. The first 11 verses are about the centrality of the resurrection to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is imperative to remember the gospel and to be reminded of the good news that we received as the power of God for our salvation and to stand fast in it proclaiming and defending the faith once and for all delivered to the Saints as Jude 1 3 says. Paul identifies here the essential matters of belief central to his apostleship and primary in his preaching. For the Messiah to have died means he must have been born. And for him to be born, he must have also lived. Or the other way, for the Messiah to have lived, he must have been born. Now, insinuated in Paul's message here, and from his other writings is the truth that Christ was born of the Virgin Mary through the Holy Spirit as God incarnate in the flesh. He tells Timothy, Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. But this passage that we are meditating on today is not an apologetic to convince unbelievers of Christ and of his resurrection, it is primarily to remind believers of an essential pillar of our faith what the Old Testament prophesied and what the New Testament proved to be true. Christ's work was one of obedience to the Father, an act of propitiation, namely of averting the wrath of God by satisfying it through the offering of himself as a gift, as a sacrifice. His work was one of obedience to the Father, an act of what we call expiation, an atonement of our sins the taking away of guilt by paying the penalty for our sins christ died for our sins for yours and mine golgotha was the day of atonement it was the true day of atonement according to the strict the scriptures There had to be shedding of blood for without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins all Old Testament prophecies and sacrifices and every Passover pointed to what Isaiah 53 spoke of as the suffering servant, despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief, even bearing our griefs and taking away our sorrows. He was stricken, smitted, and afflicted pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, chastised to bring us peace, and wounded for our healing. Like a lamb, he was led to the slaughter. Silent, he took the punishment. Obedient, he submitted to the will of the Father to crush him. Dead, he was buried with the wicked. Jesus Christ died for our sins, yours and mine. It was our sin that held him there. It was our transgression that put to death the Lord of life. On a dark Friday afternoon in Gethsemane, the Son of Man was dead. And as was the custom, his body was buried. And for a moment, all seemed lost. The silence was deafening. But as we sang... A moment ago, on the third at break of dawn, he was vindicated by God, who raised him from the dead. See the words in in verse four. He was raised. Paul doesn't say he rose. It says he was raised, declaring that he was righteous. Just as it was the will of the Father to crush him. It was also the will and the pleasure of the Father to raise him from the dead, proclaiming that the righteous one fulfilled the law's demands. He was truly his son with whom he was well pleased. He was pleased to crush him. He was also pleased to raise him from the dead and to vindicate him. Scripture speaks of the Holy One not knowing decay and not seeing corruption in Psalm 16.10 of being given a portion with the many, and of dividing a spoil with the strong in Isaiah fifty-three twelve. In essence, all prophecies about the Messiah, the sum of the Old Testament, point to death and suffering, to resurrection and to exaltation. The burial of Christ confirms the nature of bodily death, which produced a corpse and affirms that the resurrection is that of a corpse into a living body. I am not trying to prove the resurrection of Christ to unbelievers. I'm here to proclaim it to Christians named after a Messiah who died, who was raised, who now lives as king forever. For I am absolutely convinced by faith, by reason, by the word, by historical proofs, by the grace of God and by the Spirit of God that Christ is risen, That he has been raised, that he lives, and that we shall rise again with him to live with him eternally. Christ died and was buried. He was raised and he was seen. He lives and he is believed on in the world. All believers, Paul included, take their authority from the resurrected Jesus. Christianity without gospel is lost. And a gospel without resurrection is dead. To preach and to proclaim Jesus Christ is to preach and to proclaim him both dead and resurrected. Verses 12 through 19 then take us to the consequences of what if there was no resurrection that had happened? What then if Christ had not been raised? What would be the consequences of a dead messiah? Now, most genuine historians do not debate the reality of Jesus's birth, life, death, and burial, but many claim that he was never raised. More acutely, many so-called believers seem to deny the resurrection or have a warped view of it. Some, like the Sadducees at the time of Christ and of Paul, reject any resurrection altogether. After all, it is absurd that anyone would rise from the dead. Who would believe that? Others, like Greek philosophers, believe the soul to be immortal, but reject a bodily resurrection. And to be honest with you, this view is likely present in many minds, even today. For if even there is a body somewhere in a grave, it doesn't matter, because the soul is in eternal bliss. Now, some still hold to agnostic view, emphasizing knowledge and illumination as the means and path of salvation. Thus denying even sin itself and denying the resurrection of Jesus. If salvation comes by increasing knowledge and of the supernatural, there is no need to be saved from sin or death. On another note... A few like Hymenaeus and Philetus back in Ephesus that Paul warns Timothy about in 2 Timothy chapter 2 claim the resurrection already happened in a spiritual sense, so there is no need for bodies to rise and there is the freedom to do whatever one pleases. Bring forth times, unhindered times of hedonism and pleasure. And with that, usually all kinds of vices. That is the error that many Fell into which John warned about in his first letter, and on the other hand, some think they have already achieved present immortality in their union with Christ, and so resurrection is not needed because, contrary to our human experience, when we see people die every day, even death itself is unlikely. And here's one more thing: some fear the resurrection of Christ because they know that his second coming is one of judgment. Are such views irrelevant to us today in this church? They were not to the Corinthians. And I tell you that in my six years of living in the so-called Bible Belt, I have encountered people who have verbalized one way or another belief in these views. We do not have to go far to encounter or to have to think more relevantly of these matters. Because we live among people who have warped views of God, man, earth, heaven, truth, science, theology, Christology, soteriology, pneumatology, eschatology, ecclesiology, anthropology, biology, sociology, the whole gospel, let alone the resurrection. Some may not go as far as denying the resurrection of Christ, But how many people think of it as a spiritual resurrection rather than a bodily resurrection? I'm going to be honest with you. If the body of Jesus Christ is found in a grave today, I would be the first person to leave Christianity and not only do that, but mourn my life altogether. What a waste it would have been if Christ is now somewhere in a grave. The writer of Ecclesiastes says it would have all been meaningless. And here's one thing. Who can disprove a claim of spiritual resurrection without a bodily one? How many religions in the world claim that? Or how many people also claim that? Someone might explain the body is decaying. But then someone might answer, oh, yeah, but the spirit is living. And that's what matters. It's hard to argue against the spiritual resurrection. At the times of Paul and also today, it is easier for people to agree to a spiritual resurrection of sorts than to believe in a bodily resurrection. It is possible that some even here today may be doubting that you and I will rise again bodily to be with the Lord. We might think of a blissful state for our souls somewhere yonder, but not that this body will inherit a new earth. Yet the assurance we have is that this same body that is sown perishable, which Paul mentions later on in this chapter, will be raised imperishable to inhabit the new heavens and the new earth that will be redeemed by its risen Lord, Jesus Christ, who will remake all things new. What would then be the consequences of no resurrection? Well, not even Christ himself would have been raised that's what Paul says and if he was not raised then no one will ever rise again what hopelessness and futility we would be preaching a false gospel and any false gospel is bad news our faith loses its object and self destructs we would be lying about God and deserving of punishment for we would be still dead in our sins And all who died, that Paul mentions, and all who will die would have had a false hope and will be both physically and spiritually dead for all eternity. The sum of it all would be that we would stink forever. If Christ was not raised bodily from the dead, he would not have been vindicated. His righteousness would not have been counted as our own and we would still be dead in our sins. Get this. Christ died not only to save us from past sins, but from ongoing sinfulness and to deliver us from our bondage to destruction and to sin and to death. So if Christ was not raised, Romans 1 would turn to, there would be now and forever eternal, continual Condemnation. A loss of our future in Christ is also a loss of the present and of the past. To deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ is to deny the gospel and to despair of life. How foolish we would be found if we had placed all our hope in a dead Messiah or one that was only spiritually alive. It would indeed be pitiful. If Christ was not raised bodily, death would not be defeated. What are we even gathered here for today? Let us eat, drink, play, and destroy this world, for there would be nothing to look forward to beyond living a life of hedonism and unrestrained pleasure. Then comes death. In verse 32, Paul says, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die if Christ was not raised. All pursuit of holiness and of righteousness would be meaningless, utterly meaningless. What was preached to us and what we received, what we are standing in for and what we are holding fast to, what we are being reminded of today and what we are being saved by would have all been in vain. When I was preparing for today's sermon, I was going to stop at verse 20 or verse 19. But you cannot skip a good but. (laughs) But if Christ has been raised, but if Christ has been raised, his resurrection sets in motion our resurrection and the consummation of God's saving acts through the ultimate defeat of all his enemies. Paul says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The resurrection of Christ activates a chain reaction of events that can only lead to final victory and eternal glory. There is no other outcome. Every step of our walk on that path will be punctuated by hope. Maintained by assurance, decorated with promises of God, and filled with expectation that we will rise again with Him. Every harvest begins with anticipating one fruit that has come to maturity. That when you taste the sweetness of it and see how beautiful it is, you realize with much hope how much of a harvest you are expected to see coming forward toward you. An abundance will follow. And such is Christ's resurrection. Once you taste and see it, you know that there is a harvest from all peoples of the earth that will be resurrected again to worship him forever and ever. No wonder he is the Lord of harvest. That is why the dead in Christ are referred to as having fallen asleep. This is a euphemism. This is not a change of the reality of dead. But he uses that word, both here in First Thessalonians 4, because the dead in Christ do not perish. They truly rest in peace on hope of the resurrection. And as the dead in Christ rise bodily to eternal life, death is defeated, for it has no more hold on us. Death is swallowed up in the victory of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and of his saints. Death has ruled for thousands of years. The first man received life and was given dominion and authority. But through the sin of this one man, Adam, death entered the world and came to all people. But the second man, whose gospel we received, we now preach, we are saved by, and in which we stand, whose gospel we are being reminded of today, and the gospel that we must hold fast to, this son of man, brought forth resurrection, and gave life to all believers, past, present, and future. The Greek word for all, panthes, in this passage means all, which means everyone. So in verse 22, Paul says, For as in Adam all die, and then he says, So also in Christ shall all be made alive. And then he qualifies the second all in verse 23. It says, At his coming, those who belong to Christ. Those are the all who will rise again with Christ. He is not preaching universalism here. Universalism would deny the reality of Christ's death and resurrection if everyone is going to inherit eternal life. Nor are we to preach such a false doctrine. Nor is he talking here about the general resurrection for the final judgment. He is speaking of the victorious resurrection of the children of God to inherit the new heavens and the new earth and the second coming of Christ. Now, speaking of judgment, for the time being, there is still evil and death in this world. Yet Christ has been given all dominion and all authority. He is now reigning in his kingdom that we always say is already here and we are members of, but not yet fully consummated. All believers are united to Christ in his death, in his suffering, and also in his resurrection. And Christ must reign until the resurrection of all believers is declared at the second coming, when his glory will be revealed for all of us to see. His kingdom, not just all of us, for the whole world to see. When also his kingdom will destroy death, and his will shall reign supreme over believers and unbelievers in every place and in every way. The first Adam brought sin, death, and destruction. The second Adam brought righteousness, life, and victory. He died as a judged man, he was raised as the judge of men. For when he returns, he will bring justice. The justice that we and the whole cosmos are yearning for. A good justice. A perfect justice. One that will judge the wicked and destroy all the enemies of God. Paul says in Acts 17.31 that God has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Christ's resurrection means perfect justice. He will destroy every rule, every authority, and every power of his rebellious enemies because he shares his glory with no other, and he rules the world with righteousness. God's enemies are the ones who are threatened by a risen Messiah, not us. For this is the God whom we serve and worship, who is with us and for us, who is stronger than anything against us, who has adopted us into his family, who has given us his spirit as assurance and seal of our inheritance, who is calling all peoples to worship him, who has shared with us the gospel to both proclaim it to others and to hold fast to it so that we may share in Christ and in his kingdom. The resurrection of this slain Lord of life has indeed Irreversibly set in motion events that cannot be thwarted by anyone, but they can only be brought to full fruition, the resurrection of believers to eternal life and the defeat of death forever. One of the commentators says, Christ's resurrection demands a resurrection. Otherwise, death is never defeated and God would not be all in all. But God will be all in all. And he shall reign forever and ever. So it is good for us to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. Easter every day. And if that is too much for you, at least Easter every Sunday. Because we gather together to celebrate Christ's resurrection every Lord's Day. Brothers and sisters, I cannot hide my excitement as I study this great passage. The central crux of our faith is the sacrificial death of Jesus and his glorious bodily resurrection. History, past, present, and future has been forever changed because Christ was raised from the dead. No matter if they change the designation to BCE and ACE, it is the event that has divided history because Christ is risen. We no longer live in fear of judgment. We do not work in hope of salvation. We do not separate from the ailments and the realities of the world in search of enlightenment. We do not practice religious observances to appease a deity. At the end of the chapter, Paul says, We labor not in vain, knowing that our faith and our work are standing fast in the gospel which we received, which gave us right theology that leads us, and hear this, not to triumphalism, but to righteous behavior. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. That's politics. We do not seek an earthly kingdom because it is God's good pleasure to make all things new and then to give us the new heavens and the new earth as our inheritance. We might fight over a piece of land. God says he will return and he will give us all things. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? All things. Every piece of land we fight over. And every kingdom of man will be destroyed because there will be only one kingdom of God. And of his saints. I want us to meditate on the resurrection of Jesus and what it means for our future. I want us to celebrate it and rejoice rejoice in it. I want us to believe that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I want us to lament well and deeply all the results and consequences of sin, death, and destruction brought forth by the first Adam that plagues our lives day after day after day. I want us to weep when a believer dies. It's not only a celebration of life. The celebration of life is yet to come. It is a real mourning of death. It is not perishing. It is death. It is real death. But also... I don't want us to mourn in vain, and not in despair, but in the hope and full assurance that Christ is risen, that He reigns, that He has all power and all authority, that He will defeat all His enemies, death included, that He will graciously give us all things, and that we will reign with Him, that your body and my body, believer, will be raised imperishable and be given glory and power as we bear the image of the man of heaven and are transformed more into his likeness. Christ's resurrection does not only bring judgment, but healing to the world. The body that is plagued by blindness, brokenness, cancer, celiac disease, COVID, dementia, diabetes, fatigue, Friedrich's ataxia, Guillain-Barre, hypertension, injury, insomnia, kidney disease, lactose intolerance, pains, pulmonary fibrosis, weakness, and many, many ailments. This body will, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, be transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We will put on immortality, and we will see All things subjected to Christ, who in turn will subject all things to the Father. Paul says in Philippians 3.21 that he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. If we suffer with him, we will be glorified with him. Our present suffering will be turned to glory And the resurrection, because resurrection means bodily life after death in a renewed world that is remade by God for his kingdom, for his church, and for his glory. He brings radical judgment. He also brings radical healing. This is the gospel which we are being reminded of today, in which we stand, by which we are being saved into glorious resurrection with the Lord of life. Because Christ has been raised from the dead, he is worthy of our proclaiming him and of our suffering for him. For he will be raised and glorified with him. And we shall be like him and see him as he is. Resurrection occupied the minds of believers for decades after Christ was raised. Let it occupy our lives and minds again today. Our worship every Lord's Day is a foretaste of our final resurrection because nothing and no one can take away from us the living hope that is Jesus Christ in whose power and in whose life we stand sealed for a glorious resurrection that will soon be revealed to us. Church of Christ, invincible, incorruptible, imperishable. Hope in Christ for Christ is risen and he is our life father god we praise you and give you praise honor glory and power for all authority and dominion has been given to christ we thank you for the holy spirit who is the seal of our inheritance we thank you that christ is interceding for us and advocating for us that christ has us in his hands and He said, no one can snatch us away from his hand. That is the assurance we have that we stand in Christ today. Though death may come, there is assurance that because Christ is risen, we will rise again with him to eternal glory. We thank you that though the body is decaying, though there's pains and ailments in this life, we can rejoice in the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Lord, that Christ is risen, and that we have hope that we will be made new, and that we will inherit the earth. So God, today, remind us, not only today, but in the days ahead and every day of our lives, especially in difficult circumstances and as we are going through trials and tribulations that we belong to Christ and that nothing and no one can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Remind us every day of the gospel of, of our salvation. Let us not be ashamed of it, but let us proclaim it. Let us live it together in community, in fellowship with one another, reminding one another of the gospel of our salvation. Let us also live it for mission, for that is the purpose that you keep us here, so that we may proclaim the excellencies of you who called us from darkness into marvelous light. So God, we pray that we would live every day with that reality and truth that because Christ is risen, we have hope that nothing and no one can quench and we have assurance that we are our Lord's, and that one day we will see you face to face and we will rejoice and proclaim glory forevermore to our God. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.